Well, every blessing to you all and welcome back to my open air pulpit. Very misty, very cold. It's around one degrees Celsius. But I want to continue, if I may, looking at the subject concerning our blessed triune God. Three persons, but one God. And let's start today, if we may, in Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 5, if you will. Front of which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So from John 3.18, it tells us how the Son of God was begotten, not the Son of Man. And I realize this is a difficult subject to really assess and understand. And I appreciate that for some people. This is also a very emotive subject, going back to what I said last time. Whether or not you believe in incarnational sonship or generational sonship. But here it says from 1.5, front of which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son this day, have I begotten thee? And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And I caught a video a few nights ago uh, featuring Stephen Anderson, a very angry exhibitionist, I guess. Uh, he was suggesting that the Lord Jesus Christ was begotten at his resurrection. I'm not overly sure about that. I would suggest he was begotten at the incarnation. It does say that he was begotten again from the dead. And of course, you know, to beget someone means to give life to. So if you want, he may have been begotten twice. First of all, incarnation. Secondly, at the resurrection. But verse 5 says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time and of course the answer would be absolutely zero not even one thou art my son my unique son this day incarnation have i begotten thee and again i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son so i'll set one final time whether or not you believe in incarnational sonship or generational sonship the lord jesus christ is the son of god also referred to as the word of god and going back to John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And last night, I was reading through my Textus Receptus, and it says how God was the Word. From John 1, 1. Fascinating. In the beginning, concerning time, and of course, you know that John 1, 1 matches Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So therefore, John is mirroring Moses, from Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. So, when time began, the Father and the Word obviously existed. Also be aware of this, that the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, is also God. So we can say quite easily how the Spirit was also present. Found over in John 1.1, he may not be mentioned explicitly, but he's there. Front of which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, not even one, this day incarnation have I begotten thee. So if you think about Matthew chapter 1, it says Abraham begat Jacob, who begat Isaac, etc., etc., etc. And of course, when you understand that the Bible has its own built-in dictionary, you are able to understand what the term beget or begotten means. You don't need to go to the NIV or the ESV or secular books to get a definition concerning a biblical word. Just go to the Bible. And the Bible makes the case that the term begot means to bring into being. Incarnation. The word of God becomes the son of God. Look at verse 6. And again, 
when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him, because he's deity. He's God's only begotten son. Everyone else from Genesis to Revelation 22 was or were created. The angels were created. But Jesus Christ was begotten. And only Jesus Christ was begotten. So again, whether or not you hold to incarnational sonship or generational sonship, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, is still the second member of the Trinity, the second member of the Godhead. And again, I know this is an emotive subject and I appreciate some of the comments that some of you have left uh, to me and for me, and some of the emails that you sent to me concerning the subject of when was the Lord Jesus Christ begotten. And my third and final video will hopefully pull all of these verses together. Look at verse 7. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So the angels are turned into ministers, a flame of fire, like messengers, going back to the book of Revelation, how the seven churches have seven angels, like an angel assigned to each of the seven churches. And I spent around 14 or 15 months going through the book of Revelation, looking at the angels and the seven churches and trying to decode the codes. But if you think of the Lord, going back to the last few videos, not wanting, not willing, not prepared to share his glory with anyone or anything, and then the Lord Jesus Christ arrives and he will share it with the Lord Jesus Christ. And on top of that, he demands the angels to worship him. From verse 6 and 7 again, and I'll move on. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So angels can be referred to as ministers, messengers, but the Lord Jesus Christ, although he was referred to back in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, and for the New Testament, the Holy Ghost is called the angel of the Lord. That simply denotes the fact that pre his incarnation, he would appear in angelic form. It's my belief that nobody has ever seen God the Father, whether body, soul or spirit. When the Lord Jesus Christ told Thomas that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he wasn't saying that he was the Father, elsewhere he would say his Father was greater than him. Obviously he's saying that when you saw him, you saw the Godhead bodily in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, body, soul and spirit concerning the Lord Jesus Christ was a reflection of the triune God. Go to Joel chapter 2, please. Joel uh, chapter 2. Look at verse 28, if you will. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirits upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your old men shall see visions. So this was partly fulfilled at the uh, day of Pentecost, it was also partly fulfilled during the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Simeon, he saw visions, Anna, to some extent, but also, if you think of people like uh, Zachariah, the father of John the Baptist, he would see visions. If you think of someone like the seven daughters of Philip, book of Acts, they would also see visions and prophesy. 29, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids, in those days will I pour out my spirit. So it's double application. Most of the Bible, if you didn't know it, has double application. Just drop my gospel tract, pick it up in a minute. 
And a double application means just that. First of all, it's written to its initial audience, but secondly, it has a greater audience. So partly concerning the first advent, but ultimately concerning the second advent. 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Didn't happen at the first coming. Didn't even happen really at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you had an earthquake, and yes, the veil in the temple was ripped in two, but there was no signs and wonders in the heavens, but there will be at the second advent. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great, excuse me, before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come, denoting the second coming, the Lord coming back to save those that have survived the tribulation, believing Jews and also believing Gentiles, and they go up to meet the king, Matthew 25. They are rewarded by the king because they had appropriated the atonement, and off they go into the millennial kingdom. Of course, the body of Christ has already been with the Lord Jesus Christ for the entire seven-year period. In fact, I caught Anderson's Dispensational Heresy documentary last week, an awful production. A lot of facts were conveniently omitted, omitted, and I watched that and I thought, is this the best you guys can do? Attacking people like Darby, Schofield and Rutman, like their personal lives? If that's all you've got to go by, you haven't done a very good job, have you? Nothing from the documentary, around 90 minutes from memory, to disprove dispensationalism. Just for the record, I'm a semi-dispensationalist. But I'll tell you something, everyone who's born again is a dispensationalist. You have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament. Two dispensations. You say, I don't believe that. Well, let me ask you this. Are you following the Levitical Code? The rules laid out in the book of Leviticus, are you? Of course you're not. Or are you an unbelieving Jew following what is found over in the book of Hebrews? Of course you're not. Even the Jews, unbelieving of course, are dispensational to some extent. But if you are a saved sinner, whether you like it or not, you are a dispensationalist. There's a break between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was a gap of around 400 years, absolute silence. You are a dispensationalist. You may not hold to the pre-trib rapture. You may not hold to the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you are a dispensationalist. And it shall come to pass, verse 32, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. As the Lord hath said, and in a remnant whom the Lord shall call... So again, two applications, first and foremost, concerning the Lord's first coming, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Ghost is poured out on the apostles, all men incidentally, no women, and the apostles, all men, no women present, speak in tongues, known languages, not gibberish, not learned behaviour, known tongues, and from memory you've got around 11 or 12 languages which were recognised from unbelieving Jews that were present, Fast forward to the second advent, you've got 144,000 Jewish male virgins that are going to be mobilized. They will need to speak in tongues, won't they? Well, of course they will. There are parts of the world that don't speak English or Spanish or French or German. In fact, after English, Spanish is the main language around the world. Chinese, incidentally, is growing very fast. But there are over 200 languages as of right now. 
when the 144,000 arrive, they are going to need the gift of tongues, known languages, to preach the gospel. And it shall come to pass afterward, verse 28, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Going back to the New Testament and the context in reference to the Jews. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy like Philip's daughters, like Zechariah, like Simeon to some extent, all Jews. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Also going to take place during the tribulation, of course. The two witnesses are going to arrive, they're going to preach, and they're going to preach hard. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids, in those days will I pour out my spirit. The Holy Ghost is going to come on such people, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Second advent, he certainly will. Revelation chapters 4 to 19 lay out exactly what is going to take place but of course from revelation chapter 4 the church has been removed we're not on the earth the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the lord come so the day of the lord very briefly deals with the second advent the lord returning to punish unbelievers hostile antagonists, people that, uh, that like to mock Almighty God. And he's also going to come back, like I say, to bring his saints with him, Revelation 19. And we are his saints. We come back with him, Revelation 19, because we've been with him throughout the entire tribulation. Darby wasn't the first to discover the rapture, nor was Schofield or Moody or Rutman or Larkin, based on that travesty of a documentary. A lot of people were into... Uh, dispensationalism before they were. Those men made it famous, popular. A lot of people are into it. And I've said over the years that it's my belief that people such as Darby and Larkin and Schofield and others rediscovered something which had long been lost. Long been lost. And they quote Margaret MacDonald, that young girl, and they say that she had a vision. In fact, the audio comes from Walter Martin on the documentary who was post-millennial. But if you actually read what Margaret MacDonald said, she was skipping from being a mid-trib believer to a post-trib believer. And these people are too lazy to read what she wrote, and they are literally repeating, regurgitating anti-dispensational rhetoric to their ignorant audience. She wasn't pre-tribulational. She was mid-trib, then she was post-trib. And therefore, she's in the same camp as Stephen Anderson and his biblical blockheads. 32, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Now, in the context, this has some application to Matthew 24. He that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. Saved from what? Well, if you listen to some of the modern dispensationalists like Peter Ruttman, he would suggest this, that during the tribulation, it's a faith and works package. And Ruckman, along with uh, Hoffman and uh, others, believe that faith and works to be saved throughout the tribulation. And therefore you have to keep the law. Don't take the mark of the beast. And if you take the mark of the beast, or if you don't keep the law to the letter, if you don't endure, as if your life depends upon it, and of course it certainly does, but more specifically your soul, you will lose your soul and go to hell forever. 
as a faith and works package. But go back to the original dispensationalists. 150 years ago, 200 years ago, they didn't believe that nonsense. That people one day are going to be saved by their faith and their works. What in the world can you offer the Lord when it comes to your salvation? What can anybody offer the Lord when it comes to their salvation? It's always been faith alone. The Old Testament greats were saved by believing on a promise. We are saved by believing on the one that gave the promise. It's faith alone. But deliverance, in the context, Matthew 24, from the deception, from the Antichrist. Don't take the mark of the beast. Don't be deceived by the Antichrist. Don't be deceived by the false prophet. Don't be deceived by the one world religion. And parts of the documentary suggested that Larkin and uh, Darby and others, and Schofield especially, were somehow pushing the new world order. As far as I'm aware, there wasn't a new world order over 150 years ago. It really took ground after World War II. And those guys, incidentally, Darby and Schofield and others, Larkin as well, said that the Jews had to be back in the land before the Lord came back. And you know what? Surprise, surprise, that's just what happened. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. You are told to pray for the Jews. You are told to be a friend to the Jews. You are told to bless Israel. And you are also told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, shall be deliverance. As the Lord hath said, try in the Lord, and in the remnants, whom the Lord shall call. Go to Romans chapter 10. I know there is a dispute going on at present concerning uh, some of the brethren online, some good men. And just because we are uh, all brothers in the Lord, all filled with the same spirits, and all believe the same book, doesn't mean that we all agree on everything all of the time. We're not robots. The sign of a cult is that you all follow the holy leader, the blessed leader, the special leader, the special one. We don't believe that as Bible believers. Our high priest is in heaven. There were times when Paul and Peter weren't in agreement. There were times when Paul and Barnabas weren't in agreement. And one of Paul's friends, it may have been a Trophimus for memory, on one occasion didn't want to work with Paul. He wanted to stay behind. We're not all the same. We have been given freedom of liberty. That's one of the great blessings when it comes to the body of Christ. We don't speak the same. We don't dress the same. We don't enunciate our readings or our doctrines or our beliefs the same way. We're not the same. And there's a debate going on at the moment concerning should people call on the name of the Lord? What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Romans 10, Romans 10, look at verse 11. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. The just shall live by faith. And of course, you go back to Rutman and some of his followers like David Hoffman, and uh, some of the YouTube crowd, they believe that it's faith and works for the tribulation, and they build works into the plan of salvation, which of course is another gospel. And some of those guys are into Lordship salvation, which is another part 
of a false gospel. But I won't discuss that this morning. For the scripture saith, Whosoever, Jew or Gentile, believeth on him, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. So there are different ways to appropriate the atonement. Now Rutman made the erroneous statement, which was picked up in the documentary, how during the book of Acts, people were saved different ways. People appropriated the atonement in different ways. But they still got saved by receiving God's gift, which is everlasting life, via the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. On one occasion, the Ethiopian eunuch believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, got saved, and was then baptized by total immersion, and went off rejoicing. No speaking in tongues, nobody praying over him to receive everlasting life. On another occasion, Cornelius had to wait for Peter to arrive to preach to him, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And as Peter was speaking to Cornelius and co, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them. And they also spoke in tongues, unlike the Ethiopian eunuch. So you've got two guys, Cornelius, a Jewish convert, a proselyte, who gets saved one particular way. And you've got the Ethiopian eunuch who got saved another way. But it's faith alone. The eunuch came across Philip, had a conversation with him. Philip witnessed to him, read the scripture to him. Again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And he sees the water and he said, let's go down and get baptized. And they both go into the water and get baptized. He gets saved. And if he goes rejoicing, no tongues, no works, no need for people to pray over him. Cornelius, on the other hand, had to wait for Peter, a Jew, to arrive and speak to him in order for him to receive everlasting life. Many accounts. But they weren't saved different ways, they simply appropriated the atonements in different ways. Almighty God simply dispensed grace in a different mode, a different way. But it's still grace. Because when a person turns to the Lord, Romans chapter 4, the Lord looks at that person's heart. Cornelius was a man of, of great prayer, fasting, doing good works for the children of Israel. If the truth were known, he was probably saved before he met Peter. But he had to hear Peter preach to him. And when he heard Peter preach to him, in a sense, Matthew chapter 10, he would confess faith in Christ in the presence of Peter. Because Matthew chapter 10 says, Confess me before men, and I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Deny me before men, and I will deny you before my Father and his holy angels in heaven. But the eunuch didn't need that. So it could be that the eunuch was already saved pre-Philip's arrival, but I won't go beyond that point and stretch it out. I will suggest that for the eunuch and possibly Cornelius, they had to have the final aspect to the gospel explained to them. Because salvation is a long-term process. Many people have to hear the gospel, or many people are witness to in different ways. It's like a jigsaw. There's bits to go here, bits to go there. And after a while, you put all the bits together and you have a completed jigsaw. Cornelius was searching for the Lord and the Lord was searching for him and they met. And the contract was initiated, if you will, in the presence of Peter and his Jewish disciples, his colleagues. The Ethiopian eunuch was also searching for the Lord. The Lord was searching for him 
And Jesus said he would draw all men unto him and to cement the contract, to really ratify the contract concerning the Ethiopian eunuch, it was necessary. It was essential for Philip to preach to him and get him saved. And of course, the Ethiopian eunuch was a Gentile. People sometimes think that Cornelius was the first Gentile to get saved in the book of Acts. No, he wasn't. It was the Ethiopian eunuch, Gentile. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 10, it's Cornelius. Although a Gentile by birth, had converted to Judaism. He was a proselyte. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, faith alone. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. In other words, the Jews aren't going to be saved one way and the Gentiles another. That's a lie. People like uh, John Hagee like to preach it. And there was a bishop who sat down last week with Ben Shapiro, a very smug, antagonistic Jew who mocks the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lied to Shapiro. And he said to Shapiro, well, Vatican II says the Jews are all good to go. And I'm paraphrasing him, but that's pretty much what he said. And of course, I read the Catechism from 94, which repeats Vatican II. And the Muslims are pretty much good to go. And Hindus and Buddhists are pretty much good to go without needing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet yours truly has got 132 curses on me from that good old church of Rome. But Shapiro, an unbelieving Jew, he can go to heaven without Jesus. A typical Muslim, he can go to heaven without Jesus. A typical Buddhist. Hindu or Sikh can all go to heaven without Jesus, but according to the Church of Rome, an ex-Catholic like myself cannot. It's a mockery, it's a blasphemy. But of course you know that the Church of Rome sold out the Lord Jesus Christ a very long time ago. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him, to call upon the name of the Lord. Now in the context Revelation 9, Revelation 10, Revelation 11 has a dual application. Dealing with the Gentiles, obviously, because the New Testament, although written by Jews, is nearly always addressed to the Jews, excluding perhaps Hebrews, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, maybe Jude, James, and possibly Peter 1 and 2. All of the other epistles were addressed to the Gentiles, but vicariously. The epistles are going to be addressed to the Jews. The Gentiles believed and were saved and were rejoicing in just that. Going back to the Ethiopian eunuch, they were saved out of darkness. <coughs> but the hope was that the Jews would also get saved. And therefore for the Jews, if they call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved because they were in a covenantal relationship with Jehovah. But the Gentiles weren't. Paul tells you from the book of Ephesians that before you got saved, you were outside of the commonwealth of Israel, shut out in darkness without a hope in the world. And therefore, for a Gentile, a typical Gentile in Galatia or Corinth or Ephesus to call on the name of the Lord would mean nothing to the Lord because a typical Gentile wasn't part of the Old Testament covenant going back to the ten commandments which i'm still working my way through and please join me this coming sunday morning at 11 a.m uk time when the lord spoke 
to Moses and around five and a half million Jews up on the mountain. There are no Gentiles present. The church isn't present. Strictly speaking, the Ten Commandments are given to the children of Israel. Not the Gentiles or the church, but I won't touch on that this morning. No difference between the Jew and the Greek. Same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now the context is slightly different. From Joel, chapter 2, saved in the sense of deliverance. Deliverance from the Antichrist's arrival, the spread of the apostasy. The Antichrist will go into the third temple, desecrate it. And the Lord says to the Jews that are going to be saved in the tribulation. If you call upon my name, I will save you. I will deliver you from further darkness, which will be covering the earth. But here, it's been switched to salvation. For whosoever, Jew or Gentile, verse 12, male or female, that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the argument continues to focus on what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord. People like Robert Breaker and others believe that you need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Uh, even Anderson and Denlinger like to have a sinner's prayer involved in a sinner's salvation, but I can't find anybody in the New Testament praying a sinner's prayer in order to be saved. You can pray a prayer after you are saved. Well, of course, why not? You can worship the Lord and thank him for saving you after you are saved. Why not? But I can't think of anywhere in the Word of God where whether Peter, Philip, Paul, or John, or anyone else for that matter, met a repentant sinner and said, just hold my hand and pray a prayer, the so-called sinner's prayer. And of course, the sinner's prayer, as you well know, doesn't save anyone. You're saved by believing. But for the record, calling on the name of the Lord, technically speaking, is a different way of appropriating the atonements going back to the book of Acts. But strictly speaking, historically speaking, calling on the name of the Lord is a Jewish description. Of course, go back to the book of Genesis, before the Hebrews, one of Adam's sons started to call on the name of the Lord. And also Paul picks this up from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So I'm not going to stand here this morning and condemn people that call on the name of the Lord. I don't see it as a big issue, providing you are approaching the Lord in faith, trusting in him, and receiving what he has done for you, then he will save you. But I am against the sinner's prayer. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation, is faith alone from the beginning to the end. Some of the great guys, some of the best brethren, some of the most controversial figures that have ever arrived on the face of the earth and preached around the world, had their faults, had their flaws. Parts of Anderson's documentary, like I say, focused on their lifestyles, going back to their old natures. Some of these sanctimonious, self-righteous saints, wonderful men of God, of course, have never sinned, got saved when they were five or six, have been raised in very safe and uh, well-to-do families had never gone off the rails. Contrast that to Rutman who got saved late in life, or Schofield, or other 
colourful characters. If you have to attack someone's character, or use ad hominem attacks against a person, or drop down to sheer sarcasm to attack someone, you've lost the arguments. If you can't disprove something, or if you can't show something to be wrong from the Bible, then your argument is flawed and fallacious. Rightman made a lot of mistakes. I don't agree with everything that, that uh, Larkin wrote in Dispensational Truth, and yes, I have read it. I don't agree with everything that Schofield wrote in his reference Bible. He was a, he was a one-point Calvinist. He was a one-point Calvinist. I don't agree with everything that Darby said in his own translation. He was into double separation. I don't believe in that. But I don't throw out everything that those guys said and wrote based on the errors, some of their mistakes that they made. Isaiah 45, please. Isaiah 45. Aren't we blessed to be able to agree to disagree? We're not clones. Once you get the atonement right, once you get the nature of God right, everything else falls into place. Isaiah 45, Isaiah 45, look at verse 22, please. Look unto me and be ye saved. Or the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. So once again, only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. One in the sense of unity, not one in the sense of singleness. And you ask me this question, why are so many people apostatizing concerning the Trinity, falling away, embracing modalism, or the oneness position? Well, somebody radicalized them, basically. Somebody came along and was able to radicalize a Trinitarian. I remember years ago, it may have been 2008, we had a brother come over from America called Larry Keffer. Some of you may remember Larry Keffer. He had a channel on YouTube, about six foot one, big American guy, booming accent, good strong preacher. Again, some of his theology was a little off, going back to Schofield and Darby and Ruttman, but he was a good brother. And we met him in 08, and we took him around the Northwest, and he did some work with us. Got on quite well with him. There were theological issues, obviously, but he came over to the UK to uh, do a television program for memory, which didn't materialize. And he went back to America, once the show didn't materialize, and for about two or three years, didn't hear from him stopped posting videos, disappeared, and I thought to myself, where is Larry Keffer? And one morning I was on Facebook, reading through the, uh, the wall, and I saw Larry uh, posting, I guess I must have been friends with him at the time on Facebook, I don't remember being friends with him on Facebook at the time, in fact I think one of my friends was friends with him on Facebook, and he was uh, on Facebook, going back and forth with one of my uh, friends on Facebook at the time and basically what happened was Larry went back to America met up with a guy called Michael Bunker a radical five-point Calvinist who knocked Larry out of the game out of the battle and said to Larry there's no point street preaching there's no point evangelizing there's no point going out onto the streets 
the highways and the byways, because God has already chosen his elect. That's basically what he said to Kepha. And incredibly, this big American, bold and brash, took on the mob outside some nightclub on one occasion, took on the Muslims on another occasion, wasn't able to take on Michael Bunker. This five-point Calvinist was almost fearful, perhaps, of Michael Bunker, and in essence stopped street preaching, and for seven or eight years now hasn't put a video up. He has thrown in the towel, doesn't believe in street work. He was radicalized, you see. Somebody got to him. Somebody turned him. And yet when I met him, he wasn't fearful of anyone or anything. Slightly on the Arminian side, I will say that, going back to what I just said a few moments ago, having some theological differences with him. But I tell you what, I'd much rather have Larry on the street now, giving out tracts, speaking to people, trying to connect with people, then hanging around with a five-point Calvinist, listening to his sermons, working on his compound, listening to him regurgitate John Calvin's institutes. So you see, somebody got turned. Somebody was radicalized. I caught an interview a couple of weeks ago concerning an Islamic charity in the UK run by Muslims trying to help victims of radicalization. Very interesting. And this Muslim man said this, he said, some of these terrorists that have been released back into society in the UK shouldn't be released. Although they haven't killed people themselves, but what they have done is use their mouths, their words, their rhetoric to get others to go overseas and kill, to murder, to maim. And this man said, I'm having to spend a lot of my time with bereaved families that have lost sons and daughters because somebody radicalized their children. So basically, you were a Trinitarian and now you are no longer your modalist or oneness, somebody radicalized you. I guess we will never know on this side of heaven who radicalized you. Somebody came into your world, somebody came into your orbit, started to whisper into your ear, going back to the Nancy Reagan story some years ago concerning her desire for Ronnie Reagan to go easy on the homosexual and lesbian community, which he wouldn't do. But what he would do, what he would do was Legalize astrology, witchcraft, so on and so forth. 23. I've sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Keep your hand there and go to Philippians. Last time we looked at Isaiah 6 and Hebrews 1. And also uh, John 12 and uh, Isaiah again concerning Jehovah God speaking from the Old Testament and for the New Testament being the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 9 if you will. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, saved by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by calling on the person who holds the name, that at the name of Jesus, with the authority 
of Jesus. Every knee should bow of things in heaven, angelic of course, and things in earth like you and I, and things under the earth like demons and devils. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. God's only begotten Son. John 3.18 The Son of God was begotten. Almost certainly in time. This day have I begotten thee. Begotten again from the dead. Yes, it's possible he was begotten twice. Begotten, first of all, at his first advent, incarnation, to give life to. Abraham begat Jacob, who begat Isaac. And when Christ was dead, the Father raised him from the dead. So too did the Lord Jesus Christ raise himself from the dead. And so too did the Holy Ghost. So if you want to be really uh, technical on this, we could suggest this, that the Lord Jesus Christ was begotten twice. God also hath highly exalted him, being the Father, but also could be the spirits as well. Going back to in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Of course, the Holy Ghost is God, and so too is the Father. And the Word was God. Or well, the TR says, and God was the Word. Wherefore God, triune God, also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. Pretty self-explanatory. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. It could also be at the judgment seat of Christ. Those of us which are saved one day will be judged, obviously, for our crowns, our rewards, for our service, for what we did after we were saved. And I guess we will have to bow. I'm sure that we will. Also in reference to the great white throne judgments. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, to the glory, to the glory of God the Father. But God doesn't share his glory with anyone. Well, he will share it with his Son and also with the Spirit. Go to Psalm 24. So somebody radicalized Larry Keffer and now he is out of the game. He is a Calvinist himself. He's crossed the street. He's a five-point Calvinist. Yes, he may come back, but it's unlikely. When I first got saved 17 years ago, I met a lot of people in the streets around the northwest of England. Got to know some of those people. Uh, and fast forward right up until the present, most, not all, but most of those people are no longer doing street work. They've fallen away. Some have perhaps, uh, perhaps joined churches. Some have perhaps gone further into churches. Some may have moved away out of the area. That's, fa uh, that's a possibility. That's a fair assumption. But I think it's also fair to say that a good number have been radicalised. I've even heard people say this, that the Great Commission was only given to the Apostles. It wasn't given to the body of Christ generally. Well, of course, if that were the case, then how could I have got saved? How could you get saved? Because somebody told you about the Lord. 
Somebody told me about the Lord. Someone told that person that told me about the Lord. It's the Great Commission, you see. 24-7, Psalm 24-7, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Now here, the Lord is uppercase, so it's Jehovah. And if you are a Jew, a religious Jew, you believe in one person. People today that reject the Trinity are also defenders of the oneness position. Because by default, if you're not a Trinitarian, you are a modalist, a oneness. You believe in one person. But as a Trinitarian, I believe in three persons, not three parts. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. Go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. So for the Old Testament, Jehovah is obviously in the context. And if you're not a Trinitarian, you hold to God appearing in three parts. And you carve them up. You ignore basic English grammar. Like personal masculine pronouns. Person one, person two, person three. You ignore that. And you force the Godhead to be three parts, not three persons. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, look at verse uh, 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery... Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Old Testament, Psalm 24, Jehovah is referred to obviously as the Lord of glory. Paul comes along, quotes that, or carries it over to 1 Corinthians, and he says, Jesus Christ was the Lord of glory. Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48. Look at verse uh, 17. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Holy One of Israel, thy Redeemer. I am the Lord, thy God. Only one God, one Lord, one Saviour, one Redeemer, one faith, one baptism. Basically, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jehovah, God, manifest in the flesh. Thus saith the Lord, uppercase, Jehovah, or Yahweh, if you will, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way, that thou shouldest go. My Lord and my God. Isn't that what Thomas said? My Lord and my God. Before Abraham was, I am he. Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Go to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Some years ago, I remember coming home from school and uh, my parents said to me, we've got some news for you. 
And I said, oh yeah, what's happened? And they said to me, uh, Father such and such is leaving the priesthood. And I said, really? At that time, I was a Catholic. My family were Catholic, obviously. And uh, I was kind of surprised to hear that Father such and such uh, would be leaving the priesthood. And uh, Acts 3, verse 14. Acts 3, verse 14. i get there in a minute. And uh, Patrick made a phone call to another priest that he knew and said, have you heard Father such and such is leaving the priesthood? And he said, no. And he said to Patrick, but were there any signs? Did you see any signs? You see, it's like this. You don't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to throw out the Trinity and be a modalist. Or I'm going to throw out the Trinity and be a oneness like T.D. Jakes. It's been building for a while. Kefa didn't just wake up one morning and say, I won't be street preaching anymore. I'm going to become a five-point Calvinist and listen to sermons from Michael Bunker. It was building. It had been building for a while. And this priest that we knew didn't just wake up one morning and say, that's it, I'm out of here. It had been building for a while. And after maybe two or three years, who knows, he got to the points of being sick and tired of being a priest and he resigned the priesthood and that sent shockwaves as you would imagine around our church at the time and the priest that Patrick phoned up who also knew this priest was also surprised but the first thing he said to Patrick was were there any signs and he had to say no there weren't any signs we had no idea that he was going to leave the priesthood I don't think uh, some of uh, Kefa's friends thought that he would leave the priesthood or some of your favorite youtubers that stood firm on the triune nature of the lord you never thought some of your favorite youtubers would cross the street and take a load of people with them but there were signs there must have been signs you didn't see the signs we didn't see the signs going back to the priest that we once knew and i don't think kefir's friends or family saw the signs but they would have been there had you looked carefully they would have been there uh, 3.14 But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life whom God hath raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses the Holy One, the just If you get your hands on the Catholic Church's Catechism from 1994 it says that Mary is the Holy One That's a lie of course Jesus Christ is the Holy One Going back to Isaiah 48.17 but from Isaiah 48.17 if you are a Jew or if you were a Jew if you're a non-believing Christian and you read Isaiah 48.17 you are presented with Jehovah clearly in the context but from Acts 3.14 Dr. Luke applies the term the Holy One to the Lord Jesus Christ but you denied the Holy One and the just free will something which Bunker was able to convince uh, Kepha to abandon and now Kepha is a five-point radical Calvinist denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you Barabbas of course and killed the Prince of Life the Prince of Peace everlasting Father the mighty God 
whom God hath raised from the dead, in the context, the Father, later on, the Spirit, later on, the Son of God, would also be involved in resurrecting his body from the dead. 16. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all, saved by his name, saved by believing on his name, saved for his name's sake, saved by calling on his name, if you will, saved by appropriating the atonement. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We have been saved for his name's sake. But 14 again, ye denied the Holy One and the just, the Lord Jesus Christ, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And of course, this will feed into the Antichrist when he arrives, possibly not long from now. And yet people like Robert Breaker, date setters, and Peter Ruttman was also guilty of date setting. In fact, I got a sermon of Ruttman's that he did back in 1962. 1962. And he was suggesting that the rapture could come in 1963. And the second advent would obviously begin 1970. It never happened. Of course, he clarifies that and covers himself by saying it's just his own personal opinion. God wasn't speaking to him. Unlike the JW leaders and the Mormon leaders, the Catholic Church, they all believe that God speaks to them. And they've made decisions and dogmas and statements, which of course are false. But I don't throw everything out that Rutman said or did based on his foolish guessing. He wasn't prophesying, he was guessing, and he was wrong to do so. And Breaker has done this twice, and obviously is in error for doing so, and therefore enemies of the pre-trib rapture, the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, and standing with Israel, love it. They absolutely love it. And they jump on people like Breaker and Rutman and say, well, there you are, you see. These are false teachers date setting, etc, etc, etc. Well, they weren't teaching theologically or through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that the Lord would come back at a particular time, but they were foolish. They were foolish to take a chance and get it wrong. A bit like Howard Camping. Kill the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, and yet they will take the Antichrist as their own, and he will destroy them. You reap what you sow, whereof we are witnesses. In the context, Peter is speaking, but Dr. Luke, of course, is writing this down. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong. Physical healing, but we need spiritual healing. We need total forgiveness for all of our past, present, and future sins, which can only come via the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in his name, complete trust in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Going back to the person who gave the promise to Abraham is the person that we trust today. The promise giver back in the Old Testament is the one that died for our sins post the Old Testament. Or put it this way, people say this, they say, well, the Old Testament crowd look forward to the cross and those of us that are saved today look back to the cross. No, that's not how it worked. Those 
back in the day, if you will, believed in a promise, but God was looking forward to the cross. Wasn't the Old Testament greats looking forward to the cross? They had no idea of a death burial and resurrected Messiah. They got saved by believing on a promise. We are saved by believing on the one who gave the promise. So it's God, not man, that looked from eternity past into time, saw the cross, decided that it would be a cross, ordained it that it would be a cross, a Roman cross, and then set everything up so it would be just that. And his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So you've seen Isaiah cited, you've seen Acts pick up the quotes from Isaiah, you've seen Paul pick up the quotes from Isaiah, 1 Corinthians and also Philippians, because there's only one God, there's only one Lord, there's only one Saviour, there's only one Redeemer. For the Old Testament, the Jews took it to be Jehovah. And of course, Jesus is Jehovah. But be mindful of this also, that going back to the Old Testament, the revelation of the Trinity, three persons, not parts, in one God, not three gods, was a hidden revelation. It wasn't for them to know everything. It would fall on the Lord Jesus Christ to arrive, preach to his apostles the deeper things of God. The mystery of godliness was revealed to Paul. The mystery of iniquity was revealed to Paul. You go back to the Old Testament. They had little understanding as to, if you will, the two witnesses that would arrive before the Lord would return. Of course, they were told from Ezekiel about the third temple, but they weren't shown or they weren't made aware of the church age. The church age was revealed specifically to Paul. So I think we'll close it there for now, and allow me to say one final thing, if I may, before returning next week to finish off this five-part study. If you can find the person or persons that was successful in radicalizing people to become anti-Trinitarian, or to stop street preaching, or to really push this to the extreme, to become an Islamist terrorist, then of course you know straight away why people change, why they go off the rails, become guilty of apostasy, heresy, and with the Islamist example, terrorists. There's always someone somewhere putting in the poison, able to turn people, because you're either a leader or somebody who wants to be led. You're either led or a leader, and unfortunately a good number of people are not leaders, but they want to be led. They will surrender, they will submit themselves to somebody with a higher understanding, so-called, of the truth, a greater definition of what life is all about, and they will follow such a person and become a heretic, a blasphemer, and also an apostate. And you also wonder what else such people no longer hold to. But we will hold it there, and Lord willing, pick it up next time, looking at the Holy Ghost's relationship uh, with the Father and the Son, and return one final time to the emotive subjects of Christ's incarnation.
exactly what does it mean to beget the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the term Son of Man, so on and so forth. But we hold that until next time. May the Lord bless you all in Jesus' name. Amen and Amen.